I have a question for you today. It is, how do you help a person get right with God? What do you do when a Christian does not want to restore his relationship with God or with other people? Well, there's good news. Fortunately, the Bible does not leave us in the dark about this vital subject. And in this podcast, I want to talk to you, hopefully walk you through some steps of how to help, how to motivate a person to get right with God. And that is the name of the podcast. If you want to read it, I have a lot of content here tied to this article, the title of the article, the title of the podcast, How to Help a Person Get Right with God. I've linked six other articles to this because it is such a vital subject and I want to serve you well. And if you want to take the time, you can read this article, listen to this podcast, and read six more articles if you want to. also have a couple of infographics uh, that will be helpful visually. It'll walk through a couple scriptures, and then the second infographic is about the doctrine of repentance, the 13 steps of repentance, the order of repentance. You can find all of that in this article on the website, rickthomas.net. The title, How to Help a Person Get Right with God. By the way, I am Rick Thomas, and you are listening to Your Daily Drive. If you have questions about this or other questions, it's what we do. It's what we love to do. We'll be more than happy to answer your questions. What you will have to do to get your questions answered is go to our forums. They're on our website. Get on our forums, and we'll be glad to chat with you. Thank you so much again for joining me. Walking away from God, as far as living your life on ungodly terms, is a precarious way to live, but it happens. It happens to me on a daily basis. It happens every time I sin. Every time you or I sin, we are, quote, walking away from God, end quote, even though it may be just a moment, just a few seconds, and then we gather ourselves. The Spirit of God brings conviction, and we repent, and we're back in line with the gospel. You can define the act of sinning many ways. For example, a typical way to describe the act of sinning is to miss the mark. Harmardiology, many times people, and, and it's a good definition, missing the mark. It's like a, a person with a bow and an arrow, and he's shooting across the range at a target, and he misses the target. That is an idea of a picture of what sin is like. And when we do that, we are walking away from God. The mark is holiness. That is the target, to put it in a word. And when a, a, a person willfully chooses to walk away from the pursuit of holiness, he's missing the mark. He's sinning. Another way of describing the act of sinning is without God, is what I was saying earlier. We are walking away from God. We are without God because to sin is to be without God. He can't have anything to do with sin. And that is a precarious place for any individual to be. Now, for those of you who struggle with your salvation, you ha God has regenerated you, but you 
you're insecure in this area, and has it been nailed down sufficiently at this point in your life? I am not saying you can lose your salvation. There is a big difference here between the Christian who sins and the unregenerate person who sins. We don't work for our salvation, and we don't work to lose it by our disobedience. But you can grieve the Spirit. You can quench the Spirit of God. You can be relationally cold with God, just like you are with another person that you sin against. You're married to someone. You sin against them. You are walking away from that relationship in a sense, but you're not becoming unmarried. You're not breaking the relationship, but it's becoming relationally cold. And in this context, for this podcast, that's what I'm talking about. You're without God because sin comes between you and your relationship with the Lord. The struggle that happens to us is a battle for control. That is our battle. You either submit to God and walk with Him, or you obey godly desires and whims, and that is a choice to be without God, relationally speaking, if you are a believer. There are scores of imperatives in the Word of God to help us. There are over 31 another's in God's Word. It would be a wonderful research if you looked at all the one another's in the New Testament. If you want to do that quickly, I have a link here that will list nearly all of them in the New Testament. I have it in a a picture that you can pop up and look at from this article if you want to. And all of those one another's are designed. It's another person coming alongside you to help you or me to get back to God. We are our brother's keeper in that sense, because every Christian has a personal responsibility to help each other walk with the Lord. No Christian should idly spectate when sin is entangling itself around the life of a brother or sister in Christ. May I say that again? No Christian should idly spectate when sin is entangling itself around the life of a brother or sister in Christ. A helpful verse that points us in the right direction for helping an erring brother is in Matthew's gospel. The Savior gives us a template that can serve any situation where a Christian is walking, quote, without God, end quote. You know the text well, I'm pretty sure, verse 15 begins, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two among you. And then he continues on down through verse number 18. Some people call this template in Matthew 18, 15, 16, 17. They call it a church discipline policy for the church. Others call it a church restoration policy. Both terms are accurate, I suppose. It depends on how the erring brother responds to the help offered. If he does repent, you go to him and he does repent. I'm sorry, you go to him and he does not repent. It will be disciplined from the church. That's what you would get. If he does change, though, you go to him and bring his sin before him, and he does change, it will be restorative care from the church. And so 
on one side of the coin is church discipline. If he doesn't change on the other side of the coin is church restoration. If he or she chooses to change, it's up to him as to how he wants to respond to the corrective care from his brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I prefer both terms, though my prayer is always that it will be more restorative than disciplinary. If you ask me about what Matthew 18 is conveying, I would tell you it's a church restoration policy, not a church discipline. That would be my first term that I would use because that is the goal. We're not trying to discipline in the sense of being punitive, though you can discipline someone in a hard way if they refuse to listen to you. But the goal, the first goal, the head's side of the coin, if I can say it that way, is church restoration. Now, while it is the erring brother's responsibility to respond to the loving, corrective care from his brothers and sisters in Christ, it is the Christian's job to provide this kind of discipleship, which is what I was saying early, earlier. No Christian should idly spectate when sin is entangling itself around the life of a brother or sister in Christ. And so, Yes, they are to respond, and yes, we are to provide this kind of discipleship care. Often we let our brothers continue in their sin. And when you do that, it has a ripple effect of negative consequences on him, on his family, on the church, as well as defaming God's name. Now, I am not suggesting a hair-trigger approach to correcting people. I did say loving Loving, corrective care is what we are talking about here. Now, of course, I will be reminded as someone reads this article and they will say, well, it applies to women too. I don't know if I can say it enough because I continually hear that response, especially on Facebook. Well, of course it responds, to, uh, it applies to women too. It applies to either one. I'm using the male gender here because that's a, a wiser way to write, to use one gender rather than flipping back and forth. Corrective care is loving care, which implies all the scripture imperatives for adequately loving a brother back to Christ. Now, one of the most potent prescriptions for this is what Paul told his friends in Galatia. Galatians 6 1. Let me read it to you, brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, meaning you who have the Spirit, you should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I like that part. I'm glad he inserted that sentence. Sometimes it, it can be a challenge to restore an erring brother or sister, in a spirit of gentleness. And if you don't keep watch on your soul, we call that piling on in football. You're going to jump on the pile and make things a lot worse. This concept that Paul is communicating here of restoring and going to someone and restoring them in a spirit of gentleness and keeping watch on your soul is why I like the word restoration, and, and he uses the word restoration. He says we are to restore. An erring brother in a spirit of gentleness, you provide restoration with compassion and tears, not with frustration and impatience. Paul said the restorers should keep watch over their souls. 
or they too will be tempted to sin. In addition to the sinning folks that they're trying to help, imagine that piling on effect. Compounding the erring brother's sin with our sin, that's a complicated mess. You begin by dealing with one sin and end end up dealing with two. I wrote an article about that a few years ago. Uh, I sinned against my daughter the other day is the title of the article, and you can read it. And I I talked about this idea of piling on. She sinned, and rather than responding in a spirit of gentleness, I just jumped on the pile, complicated the mess. She had deer in the headlights, and I had to first clean up my mess before I could be restorative in her mess. And, And so I repented, and then we had a wonderful conversation after I cleaned up my mess. I I think most of us get the spirit of gentleness part, or we should get it. If you don't get it, uh, dear God, may the Lord have mercy and show you how to get it. But the restore part could use a little more exegetical work, a little more unpacking. I like this word a lot because it is at the heart of discipleship. There are at least two other places where you find this word in the New Testament. One is Mark 1.19 and the other one is Hebrews 11.3. Here's the word in Mark 1.19. It says, And going on a little farther, he saw, Jesus saw, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. You probably picked out the word restore here is mending. The writer used mending. uh, The the word is karatizo, the Greek word. Paul used restore in Galatians 6.1. Mark used mending in 1.19. And then the Hebrew writer used a different word. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. There's the word right there, created. By faith, we understand that the universe was created, cartetizo, by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let's talk about these two texts for a moment. In the text, we we see the same word restore used, cartetizo, used as mending and created, which is how you help someone get right with God. James and John were sitting on the bank, mending their nets. Their nets were broken, frayed, rendered unusable. They knew they needed to restore them. Paul would say, you do this mending, this restoration in a spirit of gentleness. I'm sure they were precisely doing what any fisherman would do to restore their nets properly. Paul wants to make sure we know that what we do, what we're doing is that we're mending broken lives. That's why the the term gentleness, a spirit of gentleness is important to help qualify how to do this mending. We don't go in with hammers and hatchets and chainsaws. We go in surgically and compassionately and we do a surgical work with the souls of people. Now, the Hebrew writer uses the same Greek word, but instead of calling it restore or mending, he uses the word create. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, he says. He's talking about how God spoke the world into existence. The world was in chaos. God spoke. And the world was in order. 
Now, similarly, a man living in unrepentant sin has a chaotic soul. He's in chaos in that moment. And if he's been there for a while, he's in a long pattern of chaos. He has a long-standing, habituated, chaotic, dysfunctional soul. His heart is out of line with the gospel's ability to transform. This condition is the way we all were before God first spoke into our lives through the act of regeneration. We were a chaotic mess. And God restored us in a spirit of gentleness. Hallelujah. The Spirit of God came to us and began to reorder our lives. He brought us from chaos to order. That is the process, from chaos to order, so we can magnify the name of God in all we do. The unrepentant Christian individual needs to get right with God. We who are spiritual, we who have the Spirit, any Christian, because all Christians have the Spirit. We are to come alongside a person and restore, mend, create, help reorder their life, create using Hebrews 11.3, according to the Word of God. So here's the entire text in Matthew 18. This is the template. And again, the, night, the title of the article, this podcast, How to Help a Person Get Right with God. I want to walk through the church discipline, church restoration policy that we are familiar with, that we see tucked away in in Matthew. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, it's escalating now. Tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, if you take all of the one another passages, those 30-something passages, plus this template in Matthew that I just read to you. It becomes clear as to how we can help an erring brother. Matthew is not an isolated and only text. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is not an isolated and only text for helping someone. Now, mercifully, the Savior left us with this excellent template to follow, but it's not the only thing. One of the things apparently missing from this template are the steps that should be in place in a Christian's life before he gets to the point of walking away and needing this kind of intervention. That's why you never want to start with Matthew 18. That is not the starting place for restoration, If the church discipline or church restoration policy is working in a person's life, he will be doing the necessary things to walk in holiness long before it ever gets to the place where Matthew's words come into play. It is because he's not doing what he's supposed to do. That's why you need Matthew 18 and following. It's because he's not doing what he's supposed to be doing that he 
gets to the need for the church to come alongside and to restore him. What I'm saying is, is that if he is actively praying, actively applying the word of God, let's make it more personal. If I am actively praying and actively applying the word of God, if I am actively living in transparent community and actively confessing my sins with other Christians, then I'll never see Matthew 18. Matthew 18 will never begin. And so church restoration doesn't begin in Matthew 18. It begins all over the New Testament by doing the things that the New Testament is telling us to do. If you are actively praying and applying the Word of God to your life and living in transparent community and confessing your sins, you won't see Matthew 18. I doubt it. What Matthew 18 is calling us to do is to go and tell a brother his sin. That's a person who is no longer actively praying and applying God's word and living transparent in community and confessing sin. They are stuck. They are stuck the way Paul talked about in Galatians 6.1. If any person is caught in a transgression, then maybe Matthew 18 will come into play. Now, this condition is a sad place to be, but it is necessary. And thank God that we have this passage of Scripture. But again, it's not the only passage for helping people. I have done this many times. I've been in this condition where I needed help. My wife has regularly talked to me about my sin for over 20 years now. Now that is good news. That's great news. She has come to me. It's not uncommon for her to, one, come to me, two, gently call me out regarding my sin. What a mercy from the Lord God Almighty to have a person love me enough to call me out so I, so I can experience restoration with God and others. It never has to escalate. If you're taking care of business, then it won't escalate. If you need a friend, hopefully you have a spouse or a close friend who will come alongside you, and it never has to escalate beyond that point. I've had friends in my various small groups do the same thing. This kind of communication is how things ought to be. Imagine a person who repeatedly cut himself with a knife and refused to do anything about it. It does happen. Imagine no one helping him. How awful would that be? Now, my physical illustration here is similar to sinning in the spiritual world, which is why you don't want to sin without caring biblical friends. You want people around you who love you enough to tell you your fault. Now, if you have a problem with that, then you have a bigger issue with God. If you're so high-strung and super-sensitive that you don't want people speaking into your life, then you do have a deeper issue that needs to be resolved because we need people. And I'm talking about lovingly and compassionately, not people who come along with the hammer and the hatchet and the chainsaw. The hope is that you will experience God's restoration from with your friends, and that is amazing grace that God would give us those kinds of companions. Now, someone emailed our website, and they asked how to respond to a leader in a miserable marriage. And I want to take the rest of this podcast and work through what I told him of how to respond. I'm going to call the leader in the miserable marriage, Biff, and his wife, Mabel. I'm sharing this with you because it's essential to the discussion. As, as James affirmed in James 3.1, not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. 
And so I responded to my emailer's question, and I hope that it will serve you and serve your friends who may be struggling. Now, at this point, the leader, Biff, and Mabel, his wife, are unwilling to listen to the folks who have tried to care for them, which is now it's where Matthew 18, 15 applies. But they are not interested in repenting. If the couple were, there would be a noticeable change in Biff and Mabel's attitude, their speech, their behavior, and, and they would allow you into their lives. But until this happens, you are limited in how you can help them. And because of their defiance, they are defining the relationship with you. A person's defiance will define the relationship that you can have with them and with others and the church. Sadly, the inevitable consequences are on them because of their choice not to change. You can only do so much to help somebody, but you must respond to them. Now, Biff and Mabel, their situation is no different from how you would interact with others who are walking without God. You can only interrelate with people according to how they are living. If, if they are mean to you, you respond biblically. If they are kind, you react biblically. If they are humble, if they are angry, if they are transparent, if they are stubborn, if they are unrepentant, you get the idea. You can only work with people according to what is given to you. You cannot respond to them as though they are humble, not Biff and Mabel, and as though they are pursuing change because they are not interested in change at this time. Thus, you have to respond to them from their current stubborn and unrepentant attitudinal and behavioral condition. Now, the first call to action is Biff is not qualified to be a leader, and he needs to step down, step aside, take time off from leading his church. His priority is to bring his marriage back in line with the gospel. Now, with these things in mind, let's get into the restoration process. What are the steps? Step one, Biff and Mabel have had the opportunity to make individual change. That's step one. That has nothing to do with Matthew 18. That has everything to do with the New Testament. You have an opportunity to change. And if you do change, then there are no other steps, as I was saying earlier. Step two, Biff has appealed and confronted Mabel to change, and Mabel has appealed and confronted Biff to change. Now someone has gone to them. They've gone to each other. Step three, you and others have confronted them about changing. This is what I told my email friend. They have gone to them and, and confronted them. That's step three. Biff and Mabel were unwilling to change. Step two, Biff and Mabel were not willing to change when they confronted each other. Step three, they're not willing to change when you went to them. Step four is time for next steps. As you can see, the circle is getting larger. You're at the point of bringing the church leadership into their problem, which could lead all the way to what we call church discipline. Allowing them to continue in their personal and marital sin is not loving them. The person who's cutting, his, uh, cutting himself with a knife is not loving to allow him to continue to do that. By the way, it's not good for the church. According to the email that the gentleman sent me, their sin is, is in the open. And by the way, that brings into question things that people should never question. Because now that it's in the open, and if you don't do anything about it and just let it go, here are some questions that some folks will ask. Does the church know? Does the church care? Is it okay to sin? Why are they not changing? Isn't he a church leader? 
Why isn't grace sufficient for this? They are living hypocritically. Is this what the church is about regarding their leaders? Where is God in this? Now, there is a whole list of questions, and they are serious questions that will be asked or at least be on people's minds if we aren't a caring community of Christ-like disciple-makers. All of these questions have to be decisively answered by the church leadership. The cancer is seeping into the congregation. And the sheep will be hurt. They will be confused by what is happening. And Biff and Mabel's lives without God will affirm and convince the world that religion is bogus. There is a lot in play here. Now, sadly, none of this needs to happen if Biff and Mabel choose to change the course they are on currently. But they are defining the relationship, which is why you must respond to how they are living. It has gone on long enough. It's not like you have not loved Biff and Mabel well, not provided care for them, and not appealed to them to change. Their marriage is a sad situation, but more real than you might imagine because it is closer than any of us realize. Sin is real. We all do it, and we can choose how we want to get right with God. I trust this podcast will help stem the tide in our battle against the encroachments with sin. If we can serve you further, please let us know the title of this podcast, the article, How to Help a Person Get right with God. There is a lot here, a lot of resources. I hope you'll make them available to yourself and that you will do a deep dive in this idea of restoration. Your Daily Drive is a production of rickthomas.net, a global community that is seeking to live more productive and inspiring lives. If you'd like to learn more about our community, please go to rickthomas.net, rickthomas.net.